we are in Parshat Kitisa. For those of you keeping score, this week has the golden calf, that whole incident and that storyline as well. Um, not that I, chas v'chalila, that I would think some parshiot are better or more interesting than others, um, but this is a fantastic one. This parsha, um, I can tell you actually that Amy expressed her jealousy that she, I was getting to unpack and read this parsha with this group that she would be missing it. Um, so... She is preparing, she is away, but I am excited to spend some time reading and learning and unpacking with all of you. Um, and that's what's great about Torah, is that it will be back again next year. And actually, in the case of Parshat Kitisa, this is one of these special parshiot that we get for holidays for Chagim, so it'll actually be back sooner. Um, one of the things I love about this parsha is that it's really broadly known, um, yet it's really richly layered. Uh, the story is straightforward enough that when I have a bar or bat mitzvah student who has this parsha, um, they can oftentimes come in and tell me the story and tell me about the golden calf just off the top of their head. They know this story pretty intuitively. Um, but what's interesting is when you read it, and when you really read it closely, uh, it becomes significantly more complex. Um, what seems like a simple parable about the dangers of losing faith or something along those lines um, Parts of it even begin to make less sense or begin to unravel a little bit when you look at it very closely. It's very interesting to see what happens with it. Um, so I'm excited to get into it. I want to spend a time on some close reading of it, and I also am going to bring forward today uh, one of the opinions of one of our sages and rabbinim, a medieval rabbi and commentator who talks about this. Um, we'll get to him. His name is Rashbam. This is uh, one of the medieval commentators. I'll tell you a little bit more about him when we get there, but we're going to look at his reading as well next to this. So, um, Kitisa is Exodus 30, verse 11, through chapter 34, verse 35, but we're going to start... Uh, in chapter 32, we're going to launch right into this particular incident here. So, can I get a volunteer to read just verse 1? When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, the people gathered against Aaron and said to him, Come, make us a god who shall go before us. For that man Moses, who brought us from the land of Egypt, we do not, <coughs> excuse me, we do not know what has happened to him. Okay. This sets the stage for what we're going to have, what's going to unfold here. Um, let me go ahead, before we begin to talk and unpack this, um, let me just go ahead and fill you in on what comes before in the Parsha, very, very briefly. Uh, first, there's the appointment of these construction personnel to talk about building the Mishkan, the tabernacle. We have lists of materials, uh, incense, and just before chapter 32, so leading right into this, we have God instructing the people of Israel to keep Shabbat, some of what Shabbat means, and then giving the people these two stone tablets of the pact, of the covenant. So, we've gotten this first verse. Come, let us make a God who shall go before us for that man Moses who brought us up out of the land of Egypt. We do not know what has happened to him. Questions, thoughts, responses just to this piece setting the stage here. Well, why did they refer to him like they don't even know him? Ah. <laughs> Moses. Why are they talking about Moses like they don't know him, like he's some kind of stranger here? They're insecure. Okay. They're scared to death. Okay. Because they're not in the place that they used to be. Okay. Uh, certainly one answer. Another answer that folks have given to that is that they're doing it uh, out of recrimination. That they're not saying that man Moses... Uh, out of some rhetorical twist, that they're really doing that out of anger. They're doing that to try and distance themselves, distance their enterprise from Moses. They're trying to essentially cut him down a notch um, in the way that they even talk about him. That man, Moses, whoever that guy is. Um, so that may be part of what we'll continue to get into that. I think you brought some of that forward beautifully about some of their anxiety and some of what they're holding. Other thoughts or questions just about this very beginning, just this preamble right here. Because there's, yeah, go ahead. Um, this reference to make a God that will go before us sounds almost like a reference to the thing, to the household. You know, I'll just make this one of those things. Okay. We can relate to. 
Great. Like it's a bunch we're used to relating to. Great. It's got this, uh, it very much does have this idolatrous sort of uh, tone, sort of sleal to it. Um, we'll just manufacture a god who will go before us. You mentioned the Trophim. Because we're used to having them around. Very good. That's right. We hear about this piece about Rachel, the Trophim. We know on an academic level that uh, idol that idol worship and having private shrines and pagan religious ritual was was an extant part of the ancient Near East at this time. It wouldn't have been weird for people to have their own gods like that. Bert, did you want to... Uh... Yeah, the, uh, they're talking to Aaron about his brother. Yes. And they seem to have no compunction about kind of speaking ill of this, oh, by the way, this guy, when it's his brother. <laughs> right. So that's a pretty remarkable piece, too, is that they're cutting into Moses right in front of Aaron, directly to Aaron. They're coming to him saying, that guy Moses over there, that's kind of nasty. Um, it has a particular resonance, given that they are related. They are brothers, in fact. Other pieces. Why did they say, uh, why did they ask him to make the God? Good question. Um, you could imagine, or I would suggest, that it probably has to do with Aaron's role in this whole enterprise, this whole endeavor. If um, we have the whole priest cast uh, and the Levites, and he is sort of at the helm of the priestly endeavor, the high priest. So he would be in charge of a lot of the the relational pieces with God, the relationship. It's a little bit different in terms of role than Moshe, who we get as being the greatest prophet um, that ever that the Israelites that we ever knew who saw God face to face. It's a little different than that. Um, Aaron's in charge of sort of the ritual, the rites of helping with the sanctification of these things, with the worship, as it were, in, which takes the form of sacrifice and some of these other offerings. So that's really Aaron's role. Um, if you read the next sentence, he doesn't hesitate. Right. We'll get there. And he, yeah. So wasn't, wasn't Aaron working kind of with Moses and the plagues and talking to the people and all this? So he was kind of like the co-leader. That's right. He was the lieutenant Moses, as it were. Um, Moses is lieutenant, rather, uh, in this whole endeavor. He is working closely he with Moses. He was another guy. That's I mean, they right. They kind of knew him as a semi-leader. That's right. And it's not quite like he's a replacement. It's not like a Korach figure, somebody who's totally external to the leadership in that sense. Go ahead. I seem to remember from previous years of reading mm -hmm. that they, uh, the Israelites, are already feeling the loss of their leader because he's disappeared, he's up there, he has to come back, and they're getting anxious. Very good. That's We're going to go in that direction in just a moment. Go ahead. Does it say earlier, since I'm new to more study, yeah. how long Moses has been gone at this point? You have asked the operative question that I was waiting around for us to get to here. Um, what's strange about this is that it says, when, Moses, when the people saw Moses was so long in coming down the mountain... We've jumped right from a piece where God and Moses are talking about Shabbat and the tablets to Moses suddenly having been gone for a long, long time. It doesn't totally make sense on the surface of it. We don't see Moses' distance in that way. Um, in some ways, it's possible to be so familiar with the story that Moses was gone so long, he was gone forever, um, that we, don't, we sort of gloss over that piece where we don't even see, well, how long was he gone? So for this to make sense, you have to read it. Uh, in light of Exodus chapter 24, verse 18. We're not going to go there. I'm just going to tell you what it says. This is the last time we get any kind of hint of Moses being gone. And this is the part where it says Moses was gone for? Your 40, 40 days and 40 nights. That's right. But it's not in this parsha. In fact, it is eight chapters distant from here, um, which is a remarkable thing. So... Before we get too attached to any kind of literal reading of what's going on here, I will say that it's kind of a tricky piece. Um, we get throughout this whole section, throughout these partiot, this narrative of Moses going up the mountain, down the mountain, up the mountain. Um, if you draw a diagram and you mark every time Moses goes up and Moses goes down and you track where he ought to be at each time, the thing actually unravels. Um, <laughs> 
It's not clear if they've glossed over, if the narrator here has glossed over when Moses traversed from one position or the other one, but it's not exactly the most literalistic piece. He clearly is both here and there. I think it's meant to be more of a mystical thing that we experience in that sense anyway. So I would suggest that here there's, the, uh, there's a, an invitation to read this a little bit less than concretely. Um, but this explanation for why he was gone so long, why the people freak out in this way, that was eight chapters ago. Now, you could push back against that and say, big deal. Um, we have this principle called Ein Mukdam Umeuchar B'Torah, this principle that says there's no such thing as early or late in Torah. Uh, the rabbis make great use of this principle. It's this idea that all of this is sort of happening outside of any kind of strict temporal idea of what's going on. There's no such thing as early, there's no such thing as late. These things all sort of swirl together in our religious imagination, so to speak. Um, Are you talking about yeah. the up and down? Yes. Is there a parallel between that and the angels going up and down in Jacob's dream? Is there a parallel? I never thought about it, but you kept on, you, you with your sure. saying they're going up, and you, up and down, and up and, and down. down, and up and down. Sure. Um, the parallel between the angels going up and down in Jacob's dream, that stairway to heaven, Parsha, yeah, and, um, and this piece. I haven't read a commentary on that, but I really like it. Um, what I will say about that is an idea. I had a teacher of um, Hasidut and Kabbalah, these sort of types of Jewish mysticism, and he said basically when we talk about mysticism or Kabbalah or Hasidus as popular mysticism, he said basically he drew a little picture on the board. I'm not going to bother to replicate it. There's us down here. There's God up here. And Kabbalah is everything that happens in between. The mysticism and all of that, um, what we have here with the angels going back and forth, possibly with Moses going back and forth, I think is also supposed to be what happens in between in that sense. So I think that's a, it's a beautiful uh, connection to make here. So, uh, yes? I was going to say, isn't that what happened to us when we're struggling within ourselves? between the godly part and the evil part, whatever you call it, mm -hmm. where we go, well, maybe it's this way, or maybe it's going to be that way. We go up and down in our, in our psyche or our, our feelings, whether we should follow that route or that other route. I like that a lot. That's another really nice reading. You can read a lot of these stories and narratives and a lot of what happens in Torah as being a painting a larger picture of what's going on inside of us many times internally, inside of us as individuals. Um, I think that ascent and descent, that back and forth, that trying to relay to and fro, um, I think you can absolutely make the suggestion that uh, perhaps that is a microcosm um, or perhaps, yeah, that this is something that goes on inside of us in that sense. So here we have this piece. It says that Moses was gone for a long, long time. Uh, and the people freak out, but we have uh, that actual evidence, the actual piece that talks about how far Moses is, how long Moses has been gone, um, eight chapters ago. I mentioned this principle. You can say, okay, there's no such thing as early or late. Um, but at the same time, the rabbis, and sort of, and I'll put myself in their camp as well, we don't read Torah as being uh, accidental, we don't read it as having extraneous pieces. Um, there's probably a reason I would suggest that this happens here and that it's not connected directly to this uh, temporal piece, to exactly how long he's been gone. That this falls at this time and in this place, in this Parsha, I would suggest is no accident. Um, do we have any other comments or questions about this piece? It's kind of peculiar. Why would it be offset from the timing, as it were? Because I don't think it's not about the timing. Okay. It, 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 it was about their feeling that Moses wasn't there. Okay, so whether whether he had been away for one hour or ten days or twenty days, it was their emotional kind of their emotional panic. Great about oh my god. Great, he's not here. <clears throat> Maybe the timing doesn't actually matter. It's the experience of him being gone. It's what their perception is more than the actual reality of how long he's been gone, where he is, and his position relative to the people. Maybe the actual timing, the actual distance, the actual number of days doesn't matter. Um, let's continue on, and let's see what else emerges within this. Um, would somebody like to take verses 2 through 6 for us? Uh, 
Aaron said to them, Take off the gold rings that are on the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. And all the people took off the gold rings that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. This he took from them and cast in a mold and made it into a molten calf. And they exclaimed, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron announced, Tomorrow shall be a festival of the Lord. One more. Early the next day, the people offered up burnt offerings and brought sacrifices of well-being. They sat down to eat and drink and then rose to dance. Okay. Questions, comments, responses to this. Yeah, go ahead, Carol. What's a sacrifice of well-being? A sacrifice of well-being. That's a really... I would want to sacrifice my well-being. <laughs> <laughs> so I think the implication here, so in the ancient world, uh, we don't have prayer in the same way that we do today. Um, prayer is essentially this rabbinic innovation that replaces the sacrificial system in the wake of the destruction of uh, really the second temple. Uh, so what does prayer do? Well, <clears throat> I've heard prayer described in as three different basic constitutive pieces. Um, wow, thanks, and gimme. Wow, expressing wonder, expressing um, this sense of the awe and grandeur of reality of the world of the divine. Um, thanks, it being something that, that is acknowledgement, that is thanking for what we have, that is uh, appreciative of the gifts that we have in our lives. And gimme, this last piece, uh, it is supplication as well. It is asking for things. If you look at it, it's asking for rains to fall at the proper time. It is asking that we have enough to eat, we have enough to drink. So if you think about prayer as being those three things and replacing sacrifice, there are different kinds of sacrifices that essentially did uh, perform those functions, less so with the wow piece, um, but certainly acknowledgement and certainly supplication. Um, there were also sacrifices for sin, for wrongdoing and the like. Um, so this this offering of well-being is probably not offering of our well-being, probably is asking for uh, well-being. This is probably supplication in this piece. Yeah? This actually is sort of shocking to me because it, it's placed after the tablets have been received. Mm -hmm. Aaron is Moses' brother. Mm -hmm. Aaron immediately says, the hell with my brother. <laughs> the people want a god. I'm going to give them a god. I, I don't understand what that means about what about the relationship of Aaron to Moses? Is Aaron somebody who sits there and says, I have my chance now, Moses is gone, I'm taking over? Right. Or is Aaron somebody who never believed in God anyway, thinks the whole thing is a hoax, the tablets don't mean anything, and they want gods, I'm giving them gods. I, I'm astounded by this. He doesn't, he doesn't come off very well at all. And, no. then, he, and then he becomes the high priest. Right. He's the reward. Hold on, hold on to this. There's something wrong with what's going on here. We're going to unpack that. Yeah. yeah. Not just the uh, covenantal piece. There's something even in terms of the narrative that doesn't quite add up. Go ahead. It's tricky because we sort of, you know, it's almost like we're not supposed to know what's happening. It's going to happen, but right. we do because we've read it before. <laughs> um, I, I read it as though that Aaron sort of has a situation on his hands and... Uh, and he's trying to keep peace. He's, you know, but he, I, I can think that he's trying. He doesn't know what's happening with Moses, but he doesn't want these people to revolt. So let me appease the people, and almost like buying time. Okay, Aaron is riot control. I appreciate that too, Richard. Did you uh, have a? Well, the question is, I was going to ask because I can't, I can't uh, read it. Um, is is the is the clear implication of the of the Hebrew text? that they are asking for a God that doesn't exist, or that they are asking for a representation of the God? Excellent question. But in either way... No, no. I mean, I realize the rule, I realize the rule is uh, you sh there, sh I, right. there are no idols. Right. But I think, I think that there ha would be a difference... In are they in sort of revolt against this particular God and saying, no, we want a completely other God that we point to and say, this is our God? Or do they say, well, you know, we can never see him anyway, and Moses is gone, so we, we're willing to follow him, but we just want to have something to look at to know that he's with us. Okay, so the exact request. Kum, ase lanu Elohim, asher yalchu lifanenu. 
So, come, let us make a God, Elohim, sorry, an Elohim. Thank you, Bert. I I glossed over it because I'm so used to reading it. Come, let us make gods. It is that plural, but then again, we use that plural for uh, God anyway when we're using that Elohim word. Um, Aselanu Elohim, let us make God a share that will go before us. The, The English here is... Captures it. Okay, so we're we're turning our back on that guy, and we want our own. We want a different one. That's a possibility. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, no, I read it very similarly. Like it's frightening how long mob situations can get out of control. I mean, biblically, it really it totally seems to me like a group mentality that is on the verge. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, go ahead. What's the significance of a, of a calf? It seems to me a very <laughs> odd choice. <clears throat> Okay, what is the significance of a calf? I'm happy to say a word about that here. It's interesting that they say, come let us make a god that will go before us. Aaron takes all of this stuff, and then out comes a golden calf. Casts it into a mold, and it's a calf. They didn't request a calf, but a calf is what they get. Um, So I'll read you from the uh, JPS, this academic scholarly um, edition and translation. Hebrew Egel is a young ox or bull. Uh, Throughout the ancient Near East, the bull was a symbol of lordship, leadership, strength, vital energy, and fertility. As such, it was either deified and worshipped or employed in representation of divinity. Often the bull or some other animal served as the pedestal on which the god stood, elevated above human level. The particular animal might be suggestive of the attributes ascribed to the god who was mounted upon it. Okay. There's a lot more that sort of goes into this. Wait, hang on. Here's another little piece. A young bull would have been the pedestal upon which the invisible God of Israel was popularly believed to be standing. His presence would be left to human interpretation. So it's a known symbol, is what you're saying. It is a known symbol. It is indeed. It's a symbol of that they haven't abandoned God. All right. Carol, go ahead. I like that reading. And perhaps if God had felt that way, God might not have been so angry about it afterward. <laughs> but certainly I like that as uh, putting God above that. Um, so I'm going to, Bert, and then I'm going to bring Rashbaum into the conversation. I have a question about the last yeah. Hebrew word here, which appears to be translated to dance. Ah. Zachek. Yeah which I know Rabbi Amy has talked about before. I think it's that word. Yes. Has kind of almost sexual overtones to it. 100%. Dance. So, this, so dance is not a good... Dance is not a good... Dance is a euphemistic translation here. <laughs> um, the Hebrew is implying to us that there is some kind of sexual rite orgy possibly going on in the context of this religious worship. Because um, that was common in, in that area, wasn't that's it? Right. That they were that, that they were temple prostitutes, and there was sex at altars and things of that sort. That's right. In the ancient Near East, there were different sex rites with different um, gods, goddesses uh, throughout the ancient Near East. So this would not have been atypical uh, of surrounding peoples and certain kinds of pagan worship. Um, I'm going to hold that bracket that for a moment. Um, I want to throw Rashbaum into the conversation. Everyone's talking about uh, what is this thing? Is it a representation? Is it a god itself? Um, so I'm going to bring Rashbaum in. He is a medieval rabbinic commentator. Rabbi, his, uh, his name Rashbaum is actually an acronym uh, for Rabbi Shmuel ben Meir. He lived from 1085 to 1158 in France, so he would have been contemporary with Rashi and some of those thinkers and writers. He's uh he really he really hits this thing right and hits the it's the nail right on the head. So he says this part in verse four, where it says, let's read it again, took them, cast it in a mold, made it into a molten calf, and they exclaimed, This is your God, O Israel. Rashbaum says, and I quote, that the people could not have been so stupid as to think that this thing that they just manufactured was the God that took them out of Egypt. So to unpack that for a moment, these people had just been present for the greatest and most wondrous miracles that the Jewish people, the Israelites, had ever and possibly, you could argue, will ever experience. 
um, this whole Yetziat Mitzrayim, the exodus from Egypt, and all of those wonders, the portents, God taking the people out with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, as we have in our Passover Seder, that's maybe the most wondrous thing that ever happens within Jewish, uh, to Jewish peoplehood, within Jewish consciousness and Jewish religious narrative. Rashbaum looks at that and says, the people could not be so stupid as to think that the God that did those wonderful, exalted um, things could just be replaced with this thing that they cooked and then popped out of a mold. <laughs> that this isn't, that it's absurd on the face of it. This is sort of what you all were talking about, that this narrative doesn't quite make sense on the face of it. Uh, and this is what Rashbaum is stuck on. <clears throat> So not only are these the greatest miracles ever, this is sort of one of the two moments. If you look at Jewish and Israelite peoplehood and identity, there are sort of two constitutive moments that make us as a people. Yetziat Mitzrayim is one, Revelation at Sinai is the other. They're smack in the middle of all of this, of the greatest, most exalted moments that make us a people in our relationship with God. Um, Rashbaum doesn't buy it. He doesn't buy that they think that this is a God replacing our God, yud heh vav heh So what is this golden calf then? Go ahead. Well, you just read that it was a pedestal okay. for the invisible right. God. That makes sense. It was a, a pedestal, a place um, that this God would dwell. That's the JPS sort of academic commentary reading as well, that they think it's sort of a placeholder in that way. We see a lot of that throughout it. Daniel. It's interesting that it's plural. Which, which piece? Come, come on, make us gods. Oh, yes, Elohim. Elohim. Sure. Say more. So, so instead, instead of just another god, it's rejecting, you know, monotheism or something else. Okay, maybe it's a rejection of the entire system in that sense. That's a fair reading as well. Isn't that what he used all the time also as a singular? Thank you, Bert. I <laughs> want to caution us, though. In the case of Elohim, it's kind of a peculiar word. We use that for our God, always in the plural. Um, well, not always. Sometimes we get El Elyon, other names of God, like high exalted God. Um, but very, very frequently, um, we have this formulation of Adonai Eloheinu, which literally would be yud heh vav our gods. Um, so that Elohim word, in terms of the singular and plural, it's an interesting piece that we have, and it's one of these pieces that is actually the most challenging to reconcile in that sense. So I would hold that tension, encourage us to hold that, that that still could be related to our system. It may not be uh, threatening to the entire monotheistic uh, theology. Go ahead. I'm not <clears throat> yet willing to give the Israelis the pass here. Okay. Israelis or Israelites? Well, the Israelites. <laughs> Thank you. But we see throughout Torah, we see all here, this is a stiff-necked group of people. Yes. They're always whipped into shape by somebody, from God to Moses, somebody is always beating on these people and going to kill them. So it wouldn't be inconsistent to read this that the moment Moses left, mm -hmm. these guys just said, I'm done with this stuff. <laughs> And I want my own God that I can feel, see, and touch. And it's just sort of consistent with a lot that we've seen from the staff yeah. and killing the kids. I mean, the punishment is, is throughout this whole text. The Israelites are irritating, frankly. Irritating. They, get, they are led to the, uh, the shore of the sea, and right before it parts, what do they say? What, did you lead us out here to the shore because there weren't enough graves in Egypt? It's consistent it's, all the way through it. They are a complaining and stiff-necked people. This perhaps is in character with them. Exactly. Go ahead, David, yeah. And adding to that, it says it in the next two sentences. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that Rashbaum, uh, I don't think God or Moses believe what he thinks. Mm -hmm. Because they're both saying in the next two sentences, hey, Moses, you got to get back there because <laughs> these guys are revolting. So it seems that, you know, you know God's knows doesn't seem to think that Oh, they're building the uh, yeah. uh, a nice seat to go. Right, yeah. we're gonna we're gonna move forward in a minute. I want to stick with this just a moment longer. What is this golden calf doing? Uh, it seems to have been threatening in some way to God. It seems to be threatening this whole enterprise. Um, 
Rashbaum would make the argument to you all that it doesn't replace God because the people couldn't have been that stupid, is what he says. Um, Perhaps they are. Perhaps you want to argue with Rashbaum. You'll say, maybe Rashbaum is stupid too. Who knows? All right. Rashbaum wants to make the argument that it's not actually replacing God, though. I want to stick with his line of reasoning a moment longer. What is this golden calf doing then? If it's not replacing God, what is it replacing? Yeah. It's kind of economically equalizing people. Interesting. All gold, a lot of gold has been taken away from the Israelite people and sort of turn to the service of the state and eventually it'll get destroyed, but the gold doesn't get returned to the people. So perhaps it's this economic... Um, democratization. The democratization. One could use stronger and less positive terms for that kind of um, total, uh, yeah, essentially theft of the state. Yeah, go ahead. What else could be going on here? That's an interesting piece. <laughs> Ah, there we go. There's another theory. If you're going to follow this Rashbaum um, idea that it's not replacing God, what is it replacing? What if this thing is supposed to replace Moses? This is not actually a God itself, but it's supposed to replace our connection to God, our conduit to God. It's supposed to be a new way into having relationship with God. Moses, as we see, is the greatest prophet that we will ever know, we will ever see as the Jewish people. Um, And yet here we have this thing. It comes up when Moses is away. It suddenly comes in to replace Moses, to suddenly be a new way in. It fits with this pedestal idea that we heard from the JPS, this academic piece, that it was this place where God would suddenly dwell or be perched in some way, um, that this statue in some way mediates our relationship with God in an unprecedented way. That hooks to what uh, Rabbi Amy was talking about, I think it was last week, okay, the building, the instructions for building the altar, okay, where God would rest in between the two Kruvim mm-hmm. that were in gold. Yes. And that, that was and, and it's interesting that this comes right after the description of the altar. And with respect to the gold, remember where that gold came from. It was quote borrowed from the Egyptians. Right. <laughs> and ultimately that that's it was the, the jewelry, doesn't that get melted down to use to actually make the altar? At a later point? That's right. All the people are bringing it forward. They, their right. gifts are overflowing, in fact. They can't even use all the gifts the people bring forward. That's right. Beverly, yeah. Could that be another reason why Aaron was complicit to it? Because he knew it wasn't replacing God, but yet that it was replacing Moses, and that's what the people needed for it. So he wasn't necessarily going against his brother, but he was allowing it because he knew the people needed it. So maybe, sure, maybe he knows, he's got the pulse of the people, knows what's going on with them, and sees this is a need that he is fulfilling. Um... You could also make the reading here that this is an act of subversion on the part of Aaron. Mm-hmm. Perhaps he is, if this thing is replacing Moses, perhaps mm-hmm. he is, uh, and he is the one who is the creator of this thing. He's the one who sort of operates it within uh, the Israelite consciousness. Perhaps he is exalting himself. Perhaps there's a piece of uh, something rebellious within it. You can read it both ways, either that he is doing this uh, sort of crowd control, this riot control, trying to keep the situation under wraps, or that he's actually making a play for power himself. Um, Yeah. If you took the position that it's a replacement for Moses, you have to then conclude that these people who have obvious crafts, mm-hmm. the ability to take gold and fashion a calf, then they're saying that if the calf is Moses, that's quite an insult. You know, why don't they just fashion Moses? <laughs> why don't they make a great big Moses <laughs> statue? <laughs> Boy, that would really tie this thing in knots, wouldn't it? If we had a representation of Moses, of the greatest prophet ever, that they were in some way, that was in some way, and they thought this statue was mitigating, or in some way, yeah. Dumb but talented. All right, go ahead. Now, just like a two, three-year-old, mm-hmm. when mother goes away, uh, has a blanket mm-hmm. or a doll something that takes the place because this was a popular idea at the time according to what you told us mm-hmm. it's um, it's the you know whatever the pet name is for that thing mm-hmm. 
So let's go in this direction. Let's look at what's going on with the people. One more, and then I want to um, look at a different piece here. To the, well, um, <coughs> this is, again, looking at the, um, the metaphor of the calf as a representation for Moses. One, one problem I have with that is it doesn't, if, if they didn't bow down to Moses when he was physically there, mm -hmm. why would they be bowing down to a representation of Moses? And, and then in terms of, to the point of fashioning the gold into an image of Moses, there's probably still, because it's relatively recent in their history since they left Egypt, there's probably a taboo against a, a, a representation of, of, a, of, of the human form because probably in Egypt at the time, yes, there were paintings and writings and hieroglyphics that had other people, but I believe archaeologically the only statues or the only three-dimensional representations of an individual would have been that of the pharaoh. Okay. And, and so the so even though they're now free, mm -hmm. they still have whatever taboos they would have had about physical representation of, of human beings. So if we're thinking about representation of human beings, I think that's a great point to sort of explore for just a moment when we have this Moses statue as an idea on the table. Uh, I would encourage us, suggest as a group, that we look not to the ancient Egyptian um, manifestations of deity and holiness, we can actually look at the ancient Israelite ones and the kinds of uh, pagan or idol worship that was popular at the time. Um, we get throughout not just Torah, but throughout Tanakh, throughout the Hebrew Bible, this constant drumbeat about trying to stop the people from doing all of their worship and worshiping at their local little house shrines and village shrines. Uh, there's some scholarship that thinks that the reforms of Hezekiah and Josiah and this having this one great temple and making everybody come to worship at it was really to try and cut down on all of that local worship. So what were they worshiping? Little figurines of people, by and large. Asherah and Anat and the names of these different fertility goddesses. Um, some of it would have been Baal and El and names of other gods. There are these little figurines. Um, you can see them in different uh, museums of the ancient Near East. So if there was that kind of anxiety about reproducing the human form in Egypt, that anxiety does not seem to be shared by the ancient Israelites and the ancient Canaanites and the people who would have been in and around this text and this story. Um, in fact, it's interesting to think that it might have been very popular, in fact, to have statues, little statuettes of people in this worship. So it's so something to words, hold. They're, they're really more Mesopotamian. Long, long, oh, they've been sort of Mesopotamian influenced for a much longer period of time than they were influenced by their stay in Egypt. I think it's worth looking at them as having come out of, at least or their religious imagination and narrative comes out of the Canaanite experience and a lot of that narrative as well. I want to come back around to what it is that they're thinking and feeling. Enid, you asked that early on. Um, David, you were talking about, you know, well, what is it we see that the Lord's saying to Moses, hurry back down, what's going on with the people? And you're talking about this security blanket that the people have. All of these questions come back to trying to understand what's going on with the people at this time. Um, that does seem to be the real question. So, let's see. Somebody want to read just verse 7. That's it. The Lord spoke to Moses, Hurry down, for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have acted basely. Okay, basely. I'm going to skip us forward a little bit. Fast forward through some more of the narrative and Moses talking to God and they're negotiating back and forth. Verse 25 says, Moses saw that the people were out of control since Aaron had let them get out of control <laughs> so that they were a menace to any who might oppose them. Wow. I think that, you know, if Aaron were, like, not Jewish and of some other religion and we were reading this story, I don't think we would be trying to reconstruct Aaron so much. Mm -hmm. He really is not doing good stuff here. Okay. I want. He's a bad dude here. I like. So, I want to actually just take a moment though to look that God says something different about what the people are doing than Moses does. God says, "What was it that God said?" Basely. 
Basely. basely, acting basely. You could uh, attach that to um, what Bert was pointing at with this verb, lisachek, that we have euphemistically, they are rising to dance. Um, perhaps that's in reference to that, but it's a little bit different than Moses seeing that the people were out of control. Um, thoughts about that discrepancy? We're seeing two different descriptions of what's going on with the people. Yeah? Could it be that Moses is just so angry at his brother? He's really blaming him so much more for allowing this to happen that he's really seeing it in a different way than God is. Okay. looking at people doing it more that they're just sort of rebelling and Moses is taking it to a higher degree because he expects more from his brother. I like that. That's a great reading to sort of look at that as um, that Moses is perhaps even, he's either blinded by his aggravation at his brother for this rebellion. Um, Maybe there's even a little piece that's willful within that, that he is seeing this, Aaron, you did this. Um, rather than what God is saying is, okay, this thing has gone off the rails on some other um, deeper level. Other thoughts are, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, and just to add to that, it's, just, it's such a, an incredible representation of how some brothers are. Okay. Oh, you can see in, in modern vernacular, somebody's saying, you are so lame. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So maybe there is this sibling piece. We see that all throughout all of these great stories within Genesis, within all of these other pieces. This familial dynamic um, comes into play in a big way. Go ahead. I was just going to say, I also think it's just human nature to want to blame somebody. Right. Whereas what, I think what God is saying is that people are just their inner nature mm-hmm. and that they have to fight against it. Okay. This inner nature versus this impulse to pin it on someone else, to blame someone else. So, what's the starting point of this? What is going on underneath all of this? Regardless of whether we're going to hold Moses' reading or God's reading, whether we're going to blame someone or other people, uh, the people seem to be in this state of anxiety and real fear. Um, When we have this peace... Reuben, I think you pointed this out at the very beginning. This is part of the operative element here. When they say, uh, make us a God who shall go before us for that man, Moses, who brought us out of the land of Egypt, um, that's recrimination right there. That is anger. That's hostility. That is, again, getting back to that blaming piece. If you want to talk about who is blaming who here, it's left and right. The people start out by trying to blame Moses. Moses comes back trying to blame Aaron and possibly the people being out of control. Um, But the whole thing is essentially this societal discourse that comes straight out of anxiety, it comes out of fear, it comes out of hostility, and it comes out of trying to blame other people. Um, Does a societal discourse rooted in anxiety, fear, recrimination, and anger remind you of anything? So, perhaps You're talking about the Republican debate. Those who are listening without without getting too directly into any very specific um, political statements, I think there's a piece of us that can really relate to a discourse across society that seems to be coming out of anxiety, that seems to be rooted in fear. That seems to be based on and um, hinging on recrimination of sorts. This is something that perhaps we can understand and relate to a little bit better than perhaps we might hope. It started with Eve, actually. Started with? It started already at Eve when blaming, you know, and so and so. Oh, sure. We get this throughout the Hebrew Bible, Um, not just Torah. Uh, The point (laughs) that I want to make is maybe this is a little bit more contemporary than perhaps we would like it to be as well. But this is also showing, I mean, after all, they just saw the miracle mm-hmm. and they just heard the Ten Commandments. And clearly this wasn't enough. Right. It wasn't going to be just telling them what they should do that was going to make this people into what they should be. Mm-hmm. And it was going to be a long, ultimately 40-year journey, journey and longer. Absolutely. So, we had this question... Actually, the place That's right where we're going, the placement of this. We asked this question earlier. Why would this piece be so disconnected from where Moses is, uh, where it talks about how long Moses is gone? We mentioned earlier that in chapter 24, you pointed this out for us, Rachel. How long has he been gone? Well, eight chapters ago they talk about that, but we're in a completely different piece of the story. 
But I'm going to return us to this point that nothing is accidental or incidental in Torah. It's not an accident that this piece falls right here. Um, rather than eight chapters ago in chapter 24, where it talks about Moses being gone for 40 days and 40 nights. Um, I want to suggest that perhaps this is tied to what is going on, this incident. So, if I can get a volunteer, we're actually going to move backwards very briefly. Chapter 31. Somebody want to read verses 16 and 17 of chapter 31. The Israelite people shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout the ages as a covenant for all time. It shall be a sign for all time between me and the people of Israel. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he ceased from work, and he was refreshed. Okay. He did in Hebrew, maybe? People may We'll get there. Yep. <laughs> We're going to get there, Bert. So, here we have this whole piece talking about this, observing the Sabbath throughout the ages, this is a covenant with the people. Um, here we have the golden calf. Uh, talking about that it is uh, rupturing or in some ways this assault on this covenant that we have. It seems that we are perhaps getting the antidote to this fear, this anxiety, this discourse, this hostility right before that. Perhaps it's not an accident that we are getting this piece all about Shabbat. So what is the implication here? What's the uh, antidote? It's to rest, to breathe, um, to be refreshed. To return as a people, as families, as individuals to this idea that there is something that makes us holy in our lives. We talk about Shabbat is not just something that we keep, but it sanctifies us as well. Um, it is this beautiful operative thing to us. It's remarkable that this is what stands right next to, we see society beginning to fall apart with this kind of viciousness, this fear, this anxiety. What we have right before that is this piece that... You need to stop. You need to be refreshed. You need to breathe. You need to take in what God did, that after all of this creation, all of this effort, all of this labor and work, um, it's incumbent upon you to take a breath. I, uh, I recently faced... Are you saying that people rejected it right away? Or rather, I'm suggesting that this is the answer, rather than building a golden calf, to stop and take a deep breath for a moment. That rather than to act on all of that hostility, that anxiety, that fear, on all of those things that seem to be propelling and impelling the people, the answer is sometimes to take a deep breath and to stop for a moment. Um, that's not what they did. That's right. That's not what they did. They built this calf, and the whole thing goes wrong. Yes. So I'm still standing on this principle of Ein Mugdam Umeuchar, there is no such thing as beginning or ending, that we're supposed to read this all together as being blended together, that we are reading here the antidote, what should have been, and we see what happens when it goes off the rails. So I want to share with you all a, uh, just an incident that I had. I was really recently faced with this really tremendously ugly situation, and I really wanted to act on it. I really wanted to act in any number of ways that perhaps would have been um, hasty or problematic or caused some kind of uh, greater rupture if I were to shoot my mouth off in some way. Um, I talked about some of it with my Rav, my rabbi in life, Steve Sager, and his response to this was remarkable to me. He said that sometimes in his rabbinic career, he's now the rabbi emeritus of my home synagogue in Durham, North Carolina, he said that sometimes in his rabbinic career, he's felt an acute need to act and need to react, to respond, to act aggressively or decisively in some way. And that perhaps not acting, uh, he questioned himself, was to take a deep breath, was to stop for a moment, is that in some ways an act of cowardice? Um, he said maybe, but he said in the end, when he's looked at all the situations in which he felt like he needed to react and respond um, decisively or aggressively, a deeper understanding oftentimes came to him. He said that he never made the wrong decision by not reacting in this sense. He never did the wrong thing by taking a deep breath, by letting it all come in, by sitting with, by dwelling with what is going on. That there's something powerful and instructive about this. So here in this piece, what's the opposite of reactivity? Tranquility, equanimity, holiness, um, Shabbat even. At the time at which we are most wrapped up in all of this fear, anxiety, and anger, the answer is not to give in to what are totally understandable, yet volatile pieces of our humanity. The answer is not to give in to that. Um, 
So let me read this. The answer, uh, the answer is really to be present, is to breathe, and is to, be, to dwell within Shabbat. So let me, Kurt, you are saying, let's uh, hear this in Hebrew. Let me read the end of this. Ki sheshet yamim asa Adonai et hashamayim ve'et ha'aretz. Uvayom hashvi'i shavat vayinafash. Does anyone recognize that line? Yeah, it's Vishamru. It is Vishamru. It's actually this song that we yeah. sing all the time. It is the end of Vishamru. It says literally that in six days in this piece, Yudhe Vavhe, our God, made the heavens and earth, and on the seventh day ceased from work and was refreshed. Shavat Vayinafash. Shavat, of course, we can read that and we see that connection there too. Shabbat. Um, we also see it, we can hear in that this connection to Lashevet, to sit, to rest. Take a load off, just stop for a moment. And then we have this other word, Vayinafash. We have this translation of it to be refreshed in the English. Not bad. Um, but within this Vayinafash, we also have Nefesh, we have soul. There's something that's a lot deeper and more soulful than uh, the kind of refreshment that you might see in a Pepsi commercial. This is about a returning. This is about a healing. This is about, in some ways, this repairing of the soul. This is a soulful and a deeper kind of replenishment that we're seeing here. And it stands opposite. It stands right on the edge of this societal viciousness, this discourse fueled by anger, by fear, by anxiety. It seems to be the response, the antidote, um, the way in which we respond to seeing that kind of fear and anxiety and um, general hostility, the way in which the people turn to blame Moses. Moses blames Aaron. We turn against one another. We turn on all kinds of people. When really we see what it is we're supposed to do and take from it here is Shavat Vayinafash. Um, May it be, in this sense, that rather than surrendering to all of these impulses, to this reactivity, to this hostility, um, Shavat Vayinafash. May we find that seventh day of ceasing and refreshing, in fact. In the midst of this storm and what we see going on and what we read in the news and what we hear, uh, may it be for us and our people, in turn, a Shabbat Shalom, a Shabbat of peace and Shabbat Vayina Fash. We all find this Bayomashvi Shabbat Vayina Fash, a Shabbat of restoration. May it be for us and for our people. Ganyahi Ratzon, let it be. So with that, I want to wish you all a Shabbat Shalom.